Well, today is the final day of our series in 1 Peter, technically. I say technically because we're going to look at the final three verses in the book, and then we're going to add a PS next week. All the elders will come here. We'll kind of form a panel. We'll take some questions. Uh, we'll read the entire book as a congregation from start to finish next week, exactly like we did when we began the series. So we'll hear the whole letter just kind of blanketing over us next week. And then also the elders will share some things from their own lives personally relating to the book. So it'll be more of a panel next week. I think you'll really enjoy it. But as far as the actual text of the book, today's our final week. And we're looking at 1 Peter 5, verses 12 to 14. Now, let me give you a framework by which I want you to see these verses. And I want to warn you, it's pretty meager. We could say pretty lame. But it works for me. I hope it works for you. I want to draw it from Travis's comment last week that he likes World War II movies. You remember that? Uh, he talked about that. Uh, and so as I listened, I, I thought to myself, I bet Travis, as much as he likes those movies, he's probably never watched the credits of the World War II movies. Now, I, he may have, but my guess is if you were to pin him down, he'd say, no, I don't stay for the credits. Now, that doesn't make him weird. That makes him normal. Most of you don't stay for credits, right? Uh, when I go to a movie, when the final scene's over, I'm out of there, right? That's what I came for. I didn't come to see the credits, and I don't know what half of the names and titles are. Like, what's a grip operator? I don't know what that is, right? So most of us don't watch credits, but I was thinking, for all those who are part of the movie-making process and want some recognition, I, I think I know a way that we can get more people to watch the credits and not just be so consumed with just the movie. Here's what we should do. The movie should play and we're all anticipating it and we're building to the final scene and we're there and right before everything resolves or the climax or the, the big moment, the culmination, it freezes and they run a few credits right there. They run the main credits and then they go back and they, they show the resolution or the, uh, you know, how the movie ends. Then they run the final credits. I guarantee you if we did that, more folks would watch the credits. The problem is that's a really dumb idea. Let's not do that, right? But that does give you that, that cinematic analogy that's pretty lame. It does give you a little window into how the last three verses of 1 Peter are structured. It appears, and, and in a seeming way, Peter ends in verse 11 with amen. It seems he begins to roll a few credits, and then he breaks out into one last summary statement, only followed by a few more credits. Let me show you. 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14. Here's what the text would say to us. I want to simply read it for you and see if you can kind of track with me how it's flowing. And then I want to see the text with some intriguing details. We'll just see it factually just for a few minutes because I don't want to spend a ton of time seeing the, the facts only. I want to see the truth of the text. So I want to observe the facts briefly, but I want to land on the truth boldly. And that's where we'll spend most of our time. But let's at least for now read these final three verses and see if you can kind of follow my, my meager, lame framework. Will you? Watch this. You see the end of verse 11? What's the final word? Say it together. Amen. So here begins now, verse 12, by Silvanus, 
A faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. You kind of get the sense, okay, some acknowledgments, some credits, they're rolling. But suddenly we freeze frame that and he once again revisits the final scene. Here's his culminating uh, summary. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Read the next four words with me. Stand firm in it. And now back to some credits. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Do you kind of follow that? It's like right in the middle of these acknowledgments, he kind of once again summarizes very powerfully the whole point of the book. So let's do this. Let's see the text for a few moments, some of the facts briefly that perhaps you're curious about, and then we'll uh, see the truth of the text, his main point, and we'll land there boldly. Notice, first of all, he does say in verse 12 that Silvanus was the deliverer of the letter. And he calls him a faithful brother. This is really Peter's way of giving a commendation. You may could see it like a job reference. Like if you recommend someone, you can say, hey, I've worked with them, man. They're top-notch, first class, very faithful. He's saying this to these readers, these exiled strangers, so to speak, uh, uh, chosen strangers, these, these elect exiles. He's saying you're dispersed to various locations. You're getting this letter via Sylvanus, and you can trust what he's bringing to you. Typically in this culture, the deliverer or the carrier of the letter would stay around for a bit to maybe help with clarity, any questions of what the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write. So just a real helpful person. And this is who Sylvanus is. I don't think he was the scribe or the secretary of some calling. There's some who think that could have been. I think it's minimal. I think the, the real meaning here, and it's because of the phrase, uh, by Sylvanus, I've written briefly to you. That same phrase is used in Acts 15 to describe the folks who carried the message of the apostles to the Gentile believers. The Jerusalem council met, and their decisions concerning Gentile believers was carried by these two people. Same phrase here as same phrase there. So I just take that to mean there's probably a common phrase used to describe those who would be carriers of the news. So Sylvanus is a friend. Some think he may have been Silas or maybe someone different. Take your pick there. Uh, here he's just the man that brought the news. And this news in its essence was that this is the true grace of God and the exhortation to stand for a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. That really is the, the truth of the text. But let's stay for a few more minutes now just on some of the other facts. He mentions in verse 13 this quote-unquote lady who is at Babylon. The pronoun is the pronoun she. Some think it's Peter's wife. I think a better understanding is this is really a coded reference to the church and not at Babylon because historically the Old Testament city of Babylon did not exist in this time. It was already in ruins. This is probably a coded reference for Rome. And here's why I think this is true. I think this is a reference to the church at Rome because Peter uses a lot of Old Testament language in his book. And in the Old Testament, where were those believers in exile in Babylon? That represented the enemy of God, so to speak, of God's people. So he's writing now to those who've been exiled. They've been dispersed from the current oppressors of God's people, which was Rome at that point. 
And I think here he's kind of making a little bit of a cryptic message to say, hey, to all of you who've been scattered and you're now exiles, you're in the line of those who have experienced what you are now experiencing. You're in good company. And there are even current folks in this city of Rome who have also been chosen just like you. It's, it's meant to be a comforting greeting. Like, hey, you are not alone. There have been folks who've gone before you in the Old Testament who've been exiled. You're now exiled, but there are folks here back in this city who think of you and pray for you and who are for you. So I think that's what's going on here. It's probably a reference to the church at Rome. One other reason that could be true is that the Bible does reference the church in a female fashion often. We're called the bride of Christ. The Apostle John talks about a church. I think it's his second letter, maybe it's his third, but in one of those two epistles, he talks about the elect lady. And so this, this has got a good pattern that Peter here is probably talking about the church at Rome, also under persecution, but likewise chosen. That's how he begins the letter. Remember chapter one? Chosen by God, elect exiles. You're, you're, you're strangers in this world, but God knows you and you're headed to, to your real home. And he says, that church sends them greetings and so does Mark, my son. Perhaps his indication that Mark was part of that church. Not sure. This is the Mark that traveled with Paul and Barnabas. This is the Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark. So he was um, apparently a very close to Peter. And so these two, along with Peter, they're encouraged to greet one another with the kiss of love. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because Paul would often say, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, there's nothing sexual in what Paul said or in what Peter said. Both of them are simply affirming that within the spiritual family of Christ, there's to be a, a, a camaraderie, a communal type of commitment. And in this culture, there was a way to signify that. It was with a, a kiss of love or a holy kiss, probably a, a peck on each cheek, perhaps some other fashion, but it was a physical way to say, hey, we're in the same family and I'm committed to you. You know, in 1 Peter 4, Peter already told them to love one another fervently, to, to make sure they're staying true to their commitments to each other relationally. So just another echo of him to say, remember to, to love each other. I remember living this out once. I was in France. This is back in 2000. And one of our trips was to visit, I think it was an orphanage. It may have been a ministry center, but it was in somewhat of a rural setting. And so we had about 15 high schoolers with us. Uh, Terry Anderson was in that group. He's right there, in fact, in the middle. And I remember Terry unloading from those vans and just approaching this building. It was like a house, but something was, a, something was going on there in a good way, and we were there to kind of support. And out the front door comes this roaring, rather large lady, and she's just speaking French 100 miles an hour. And I think she's asking who the leader was because I believe they pointed to me and then before I knew it, man, I'm engulfed, and she's kissing this cheek, and she's kissing that cheek. She kissed my forehead. There's a lot of it she couldn't miss. I mean, she's like, mom, mom. And so I just returned the favor. I'm like, okay, you know. And now, as odd as I may have felt, here's something else I felt. In that moment, I felt loved and welcomed. Like, I guess I'm part of this family. It's amazing how quickly I felt drawn in. This is all that Peter's after here. 
There's a physical way that's right and appropriate to, to let your brothers and sisters know who are either in exile, who are being persecuted. Peter says there's a way to let them know, man, I'm for you, I'm with you, we're together, we're in the same family. And then he extends to them peace, which is no doubt good news to an exiled stranger, isn't it? Someone who's wandering, who's had their house taken, who may have been forced to go somewhere else. Everything's up in the air, and yet he says peace to those of you in Christ. I love the last two words because that's truly indicative of their actual location, isn't it? They may have been wanderers, exiles. Maybe they were kind of booted out of where they were due to persecution. They were under a lot of stress, and yet Peter's saying, you know what, if you're in Christ, you've got peace regardless of what the outside feels like. So this is a, a remarkably helpful closing. And as intriguing as those general facts may be, there's really one central truth to his closing that we don't want to miss. And it's found in the two phrases that close verse 12. Will you put your eyes on those just with me for a moment? He says that he's been exhorting and declaring, and those words mean testifying, encouraging. This is what he's been pointing to. That this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the truth of these final three verses. That there is a true gospel and he wants them to stand firm in it. Now we're going to look at those two phrases just for a few moments individually. Before I do, let me show you how I think these two phrases uniquely and supernaturally sum up the whole book. I've been really intrigued by this for a number of weeks. You probably recall how we structured the book back when we first began our study. I'm sure you do, right? January 23rd, 2022. It's fresh on your memory, isn't it? Of course it is, right? When we laid out our series, we showed you that really the book's divided into two parts. We labeled them like this, that there is about a chapter and a half in which we see our secure position being discussed. It's chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 12. I think that correlates to the phrase, this is the true grace of God. You'll see it on the screen behind me how this phrase, these two phrases really kind of show the entire book. So chapters 1, verse 1, through 2, 12, it's his discussion of the true grace of God. And then 2, 13, through about 5, 14, it's his exhortation to stand firm in this grace. He talked about our certain privilege, which was to suffer. So he talks about salvation, the true grace of God, and suffering, which is really, in essence, standing firm in this grace, no matter what comes, no matter what happens. In fact, you recall in many of those sections, he would talk about suffering uh, as a um, Christian for righteousness sake, whether it be from the government or in a relationship, perhaps like a, a marriage with an unsafe spouse or in a work environment or even in the culture in general or verbally. He gave various scenarios in which one could suffer for righteousness' sake. And his common refrain was this, humbly submit to God. Entrust your souls to your Creator because when you suffer with Him, you will then experience the glories with Him. They go hand in hand. Peter never once seemed to indicate, let me see if I can get you out of this trouble you're in. He always called for a joyful endurance. He would even say that when you're bruised, you should bless. 
He said, consider it a joy when people revile you and malign you. And so do you see what's happening here? Peter spent five chapters talking about our secure position and our certain privilege. And just before he finishes his credits, he one last time says it even more succinctly. He says, readers, this is the true grace of God. And I think the antecedent for the pronoun this is the entire book. And then he says, stand firm in it. Don't you love it when someone can just take a lot of words and put them into a few and very succinctly and sharply just kind of deliver the message? This is what Peter is doing here in these two phrases. Now, a few nuggets about each phrase as you kind of let that kind of blanket you and kind of pour over you. When Peter says, this is the true grace of God, and I do believe he's referring to the, all that he's written, especially chapters 1 and half of 2, in which he goes over all that God has done for us in Christ, how Christ is the cornerstone for all who believe. He's the stumbling block for those who don't believe. It's through his blood that we've been redeemed and reconciled. His blood is precious. It's only through his blood. It's by his death. And Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God. And this is God's work on our behalf. It's all God's doing. As he talks about this true grace of God, his use of the word true tells me something. That there must be a way that is what? False. And there were for Peter, in his day and time, false gospels. And there are today as well, false gospels. So it is important that we understand the true grace of God. You see, when anyone tries to put our work over God's work, that's a false gospel. Whenever what you hear or read or see that says it's the gospel re-images Jesus into something other than the God-man, that's a false gospel. When any gospel you see, reader here, says it's by your work, not God's power, that's a false gospel. There is a true gospel and there is and are false gospels. So it is imperative that we know the true gospel. To that end, let me just give you a four-word guide, or you could even say a four-word filter to recognizing the true gospel, the gospel of God's grace, and even communicating it. I've shared this for years. This won't be new to many of you, but we have a lot of new people on a regular basis. And so let me just kind of share with you four words that we use to summarize the true grace of God or the true gospel of God, His grace to mankind. It's these words, God, man, Christ, response. Will you say those four words with me? God, man, Christ, response. And I personally have found it very helpful just to use those four words, not only to guide me in how I hear the gospel, and, and are they spot on on this, and are they communicating this accurately and correctly, but also when I have opportunity to share the gospel, it serves as a guide for me, because often you don't get an hour to, prep, to lay it out, do you? Sometimes you do, but often in that first encounter, you've got about maybe 60 seconds, 90 seconds. These four words help me communicate the gospel, sometimes in like 60 or 90 seconds. 
In fact, will you celebrate the gospel with me for a moment? Let's see if we can just do this within these uh, within this room here for a minute. That God, who is holy and just, created mankind because he loved man, wanted a fellowship with man. But in the garden, mankind sinned against God. And our first earthly father, Adam, from that point forward, passed on to every single human being the nature of sin. It's innate in us. And thus, we're now not right with God. We're distanced from God. There's an eternal gap and predicament between us and God. We're not reconciled to God. And because we are the ones who caused the problem, we're the sinners, we can't fix what we broke. But God can, and he did. By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, as one of us, and yet because Jesus was God, he was holy. And so because Jesus was human, and yet holy, he could bridge the gap between unholy man and holy God. And he did that when he died on the cross and gave his life and shed his blood as the only sacrifice for our sins that God would accept because Jesus was God. And when God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, it was God's way of saying, I accept in full payment Christ's sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And now God offers salvation, forgiveness of sins to any who would repent and believe in Jesus as the only way to be reconciled to God. That's the gospel. And any news, any preaching, any message that leaves out those essential components, it's a false gospel. Aren't you glad that in God's sovereignty, he made sure you heard the true grace that he offers those who are sinners? Amen. And somewhere in your life, if you're here and you're a believer, when you heard that news, and it's not just information, it's actually a person named Jesus. He is the gospel. When you heard about Jesus and his work for you on the cross and how God sent him to do what no one else could ever do and to stand in for you and pay your penalty and to pay the price, aren't you so glad that God and his wisdom convicted your heart and drew you to Jesus gave you the faith to believe. And you cried out to God and said, Lord, I'm lost. I can't save myself. God, would you save me through Jesus? And there was a day in your life when you cried out to God for salvation and he did exactly that. He saved you. Amen. If you know the joy of that, amen. Say hallelujah. Praise God. You're celebrating the gospel, the true grace of God. And let me just quickly add, there may be some that that's the first time you've heard that. Oh, you've heard that there's a God, but you thought it was your job to get back to him. Kind of like climb the ladder out of the hole you're in. So you think that your works will get you there. Or maybe you've heard of Jesus, but you thought he was just another good guy that perhaps has another way. He's like a prophet. You see, all those are false gospels. Catholicism, thinking that your works help God. Um... Mormonism, which that Jesus is just another good guy, a little better than you, but not really God. Islam, Buddhism, prosperityism, heretical brands of Protestantism, those all exist and they're false gospels because they change core beliefs about God, man, Christ, and our response. But when you hear that there's a holy God, the creator of all things, 
who solved man's eternal sin problem by sending his son Jesus as the one and only mediator, and now he calls men everywhere to repent, that's the true grace of God. And if you've never believed in that gospel, could I in this very moment ask you to trust in Jesus for your salvation and to receive forgiveness of your sins? You see, here's the reality. If that's you, your sins will be paid for. God is not an unjust God to overlook sin. Either you will pay the price for your sins in hell separated from God, or you'll trust in Christ who paid the price for your sins on the cross, the sacrifice that God accepted. So which one is it? Are you going to trust yourself that you can get there and fix a problem that, that you really can't? Cross a bridge and, and bridge a gap you can't, you can't bridge? And then experience separation from God eternally? Or will you trust Christ, the one and only Savior who was God's Son, who loved you and he gave his life for you? Oh, I would pastorally urge you, right now in that chair, ask God to save you through Jesus. And here's what God will do. Save you. Once we are born again and saved, once we have known God in this way, once we've accepted by repenting of sin and trusting the true grace of God, which is the person of Christ and his work for us, the text then says to stand firm in this. Interesting, isn't it? The whole idea of standing firm is is that there's a persevering factor. Do you kind of sense the ambiance of this phrase? Like stand firm in it. Like something's going to push against you. Something's going to come hard at you. Something about this is not easy. But don't give up. Endure. Persevere. Stay strong. Stand firm in this grace. I like the word grit. It's kind of what Peter's after here. There's grace and be gritty about standing in it. Like don't Give up. This is really the aim of of the entire book because Peter, throughout his book, he talks about all the ways and all the the mechanisms, whether it be uh, through suffering or through temptation, like Travis talked about last week, in which we're going to be tested and tried. Our our faith is going to be, you know, attacked. And we'll... You stand firm. Hear this, church. You will if you're standing on God's grace. Because that's the kind of grit that endures to the end. So here's the two phrases. The true grace of God. And then it provides for us the foundation to stand firm. And the implication being that this must be a a difficult persevering, enduring kind of stance. Now, when you hear that, let me just kind of approach this and and address this because you you may think, well, this is kind of a downer, Todd. I mean, whatever happened to like, hey, get saved and all your problems are over. Why can't you promise me a rose garden? Like, what's up with this, right? Well, can we just admit that perhaps some of our preaching in the 21st century, perhaps the 20th century, has just been all about how... uh, maybe has been all about maybe, I'm not saying we're not blessed, but we have sometimes taken what is eternal blessings and the glories that will be revealed 
And we've said, we'll get them all in the here and now. And, and can we just be frank? Sometimes following Christ, it's very difficult. There's a price to pay. There is a cost to it. If you don't want to hear that, don't read the New Testament. Jesus said that those first disciples were to take up their cross and follow him. Why would you carry a cross if you weren't intending to die? The discipleship road is a death march. He said to his disciples, you can't follow me if you don't hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister. In other words, you must want him more than anyone or anything. What you sang earlier, that actually has to be the real truth of your life. That there's no relationship more important than the one with Jesus. That there's no object or item more important than the treasure of Jesus. He says throughout the New Testament that we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. James, Hebrews, 1 Peter, other books, they're about the, the, the suffering that comes as part of the territory of following Jesus. And so I'm just laying this out before you because I think it would be wise just to hear this simple advice. Let's quit complaining when it's hard. We knew this from day one. <laughs> and we've just superimposed on the gospel and its expectations things that we prefer. When all along, God in his word has told us this is a journey of difficulty, of suffering, of trial. So when that becomes true in your life at various points, don't act like you're getting a raw deal. That's the normal road of discipleship. We believe this so strongly that we added this to our list of values several years ago at First Family. I think we had about eight values that we've lived by since day one. You can find those on our website. A few years ago, one of our elders was sensing the need to make suffering just a normal part of our thinking. That it's not odd when we're mistreated or maligned or have to endure trials. This is part of discipleship. And so we prayed with him and we just collectively realized, yes, God is leading us to help people see that suffering is really God's counterintuitive maturing process. So here's how it's written in our documents and, and church papers. I'll show it to you on the screen behind me. But it simply states that we value God's counterintuitive maturing process of suffering. In other words, we value that. We consider it normal. We would say it's even expected. And so the last sentence says, we embrace this perspective. We heed the call for endurance and we run the race with this pers with pers perseverance. And can I just challenge you that when you want to point a finger at God, when you want to blame him, when you think, hey, I didn't see this fine print. It's not fine print. It's bold letters from the get-go. And can we agree that his grace will enable us even in those most difficult moments which are expected, His grace will empower and enable us to stand firm, not budge, not move, to remain steadfast. Now, we could spend a lot more time talking about those two phrases. We could dig into the words. It would be a lot of fun to do that. But I, I don't want to do that here today. Maybe in your small group over dinner with your family, you can discuss those even more. 
I want to show you what I think as I land the plane. I want to show you just what I think may be the most important observation about this phrase. Because not only does it summarize the whole book, and the two phrases individually are quite meaningful, they are connected. There's a sequence to them that matters. The first phrase is an indicative. God's grace is. Peter didn't say, hey, church, vote to see if this is the true grace of God. He didn't say, take an approval meter and find out if everyone agrees. He simply states what is. This is the true grace of God. All that is said about God's work on our behalf through Christ, that's the true grace of God. And then he gives the imperative, stand firm. I think the sequence of words here, the sequence of these phrases may be perhaps in Peter's mind what he's really after, to show those readers I don't want you to muster up some human effort. I don't want you to white-knuckle it or pedal faster. I want you to see God's true grace and let that source every bit of your grit to go the distance. Like, that's what's happening. You see, the indicative, now watch this. This is how we'll say it kind of in seminary. We would always say this. The indicative establishes the imperative. You follow me? Here's a a more simpler way to say it. I shouldn't say more simpler. Here's a simpler way to say it. That God always equips for what he demands. He always empowers for what he requires. And does God require you to stand firm? Yes, but he's given you the power to do it. It's called his grace. Does he expect you to? Does he demand that of his followers? Yes. In fact, I would say every true believer will truly endure But it's not because they have something great about them. They have some extra strength that, you know, within themselves or they're white knuckling and pedaling faster and trying harder. None of that is true. They're often the weakest people you can see on the outside. But they are standing on the grace of God and the grace of God establishes. uh, It's the foundation for their stance. Grace is what empowers a firm stance. I find that to be comforting consoling because I sometimes feel like I I don't have the strength to make it. You ever felt that way? Like if I could be lost, I probably would be lost. But I'm not the one keeping hold of the thing. God's keeping hold of me, enabling me to keep hold of the thing. Are you with me? That's what's happening here. That's why Jude would say that God will keep you from stumbling. He never once said, hey, you'll keep yourself from stumbling. God keeps us from stumbling. That's why he's the one to be praised and glorified and lifted up and magnified. He's got a hold of us. So we stand on grace and we keep a hold of grace. You see, to put it in the simplest way, this sequence matters and shows me that God's grace gives me the grit to go the distance. Will you say that with me? That's our take home truth. Just simply say it together. God's grace gives me the grit to go the distance. And this is always the case. It's always God's fuel that provides the foundation for my life. It's always God empowering what he expects. It's always God making sure he's enabling what he demands. Every single time, God will never call you to an action he won't empower you to do. 
And so when he says, stand firm, it's preceded by, oh, by the way, here's the true grace. (laughs) I love this phrase, and I love the sequence of it. I trust you're hearing this and seeing this and realizing, well, that's where the power is. That's the source. That's where the foundation is. Exactly. Now, you'll resolve this morning to have a more vertical focus on God as your source so that then you can have a more horizontal stance, a firmer uh, grip, we'll call it, deeper grip, not because of who you are, but because of God's grace in you. Someone who lived this out beautifully, I didn't know this person, but I heard about him this week, was a man named Gary. Gary died last week at the age of 90. Gary was saved when he was 27. And when Gary was saved, he was the first and only believer in his family or extended family. There were many of them, and he was the first one to trust Christ and believe in the gospel of God's grace. He was so enamored with it and so changed by it, so transformed by it, that he began to tell all of his family about this beautiful grace of God as seen in Christ's death and resurrection, the opportunity to receive forgiveness and be saved. And over time, little by little, people began to be saved that were in Gary's family. This husband or that wife or this in-law or child. And for 63 years... Gary did this. His granddaughter, Heidi Height, she told me last week that best they can tell, 47 people have come to Christ in those 63 years because Gary has stood firm on the true grace of God. Were there pushbacks? Skepticism? Was there doubt? Sure there was. There were times when it seemed like maybe he wasn't getting through, but he remained Resolute, this is how God reconciles people. It's through Jesus Christ. And he continued to share, live, standing firmly on the true grace of God. And over time, he changed the trajectory of an entire generation in his family. I know we love to see quick results. We love microwave versions of things. But I want to call you this morning to seeing the true grace of God and standing firm in it, if need be, for 63 years. So that anyone who comes in contact with you knows there's one way to be right with God. It's through Jesus Christ, God's Son. And who knows how God will use you in standing firm on His true grace to change the trajectory of people around you. That's not only what Peter told his readers to do. That's not only what Gary did. That's the charge for all of us to know the true grace of God and to stand firm in it.